Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. Okay, well, uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in to our, our notes here. Okay, so Father, we ask you in Jesus' name for your grace tonight to rest on the teaching of the Word on Bible verses to alert, alarm, and inform our spirits. And God, uh, just your purposes with the second coming, everything that you're doing when you come back, all that you have wrapped up in that. We pray in Jesus' name for grace tonight. Amen. Well, tonight is entitled The Second Coming Procession. And uh, if you don't have a copy of the notes, you can get those. We also have them available online for those of you who are watching online or Uh, who are listening to this later. The notes are available uh, online. And I want to just give a little bit of an overview of where we've been and then uh, where we're going tonight. So um, if this is not a new idea to you, or rather, if this is a new idea, it's it's a little slow start tonight. You guys got to bear with me. If this is a new idea to you, the subject of the second coming is one of the most complex issues uh, Maybe in the Bible, but for sure in the end times. It's probably the most complicated, the most complex. Now, I want you to I want you to hear that again. I want you to I want you to take that in because if this is if you're not super familiar with why that's the case, you'd probably go, Jesus is coming back, we win. What else is there? And it's one of the most complicated, multifaceted layers. Uh, uh, of a subject in the Bible. Um, I I mean, I'm saying that in the Bible, I honestly, nothing's coming to mind right now. I'm not saying there isn't anything. I'm just saying nothing is coming to mind that when you say a term, it means more things. I'm just like, (laughs) like it just, the second coming, it's like, it means everything. It's, it's the wrapping up of the gospel. It's, it's when we're resurrected. It's, there's so many things wrapped up in Jesus's return. And what we're going to look at uh, tonight is we're going to look at actually how complicated, and I want to say that again, strong. We're going to look at how complicated it is when he comes back, how complex rather it is that he doesn't just show up in the sky and it's over. He's going to accomplish about 30 things. He's going to do 30 things made up number, but it's not 10. It's a lot. He's going to do stuff that the Bible says he's going to do. So we don't, I'm not talking about we need to go on the internet and figure out what do weird people think Jesus is going to do when he comes back, dot org. I, I want to look at what does the Bible say Jesus is going to do when he comes back and not just after he's come back and settled in. That's a whole nother conversation. That's the millennium. We'll get to that later. I'm talking about when he comes back, where does he come back? What does he do the first thing? What does he do the second thing? What does he do the 12th thing? Because when he comes back, the Bible tells us there is a complex agenda that starts with him appearing in the sky. But that is not the end of it. That is the beginning. Him appearing in the sky is the beginning. And now I'm going to kind of dovetail into last uh, session that we did. We did a session of Jesus appearing in the sky. I want to say it this way. We didn't announce it that way. But last session when we did Jesus appearing in the sky as the warrior king coming out of heaven, remember the session? As we did that session, that's actually the beginning of a processional march to Jerusalem. When Jesus appears in the sky, that is the beginning of, again, these 30 things, made up number, but these 30 things he's going to do from the time he appears in the sky to him coming to Jerusalem, he's going to accomplish 30 things. We refer to that 30 things as the second coming procession. The reason we call it a procession is because this is the king. The king of the planet is returning. And when he comes back, like a king being ushered into a city, just imagine, you know, back in the day, some king's army, you know, takes over a a country. And now he's the new king over that country as well, or or he's the, you know, the new power. 
They're going to do a procession into town. There's going to be trumpets blasting, and there's going to be people in the streets. There's going to be a parade, and there's going to be a big announcement, and it's going to be a big to-do. There's also going to be his army marching with him, you know, behind him and on, side, on the side. And this army marching. When we talk about the return of Jesus, we need to tie that to last message on Jesus the warrior king coming out of heaven, showing up in the sky. Because that is the start of him marching to Jerusalem to take what has always been his, but has never been enforced as his. You know, it's the, it's the little sister that knows that the little, it's the big sister that knows the little brother just took the toy, but kind of lets him get by with it for a while until she goes over and says, give me that back. That's my toy. It was always her toy. But there was a little confusion of ownership there for a minute because a lesser power had his hands wrapped around that toy. Well, Jesus is going to come and he's going to take back his planet. He's going to say, give me that. That's mine. (laughs) Give me that Jerusalem. That's my capital city. Give me that whole population of Jewish people. Those are my people. They share my blood. We're the same. He's going to say, give me that whole planet. It's mine. And the way that he's going to do that is he's going to show up as a warrior king He's going to take over the planet, and there's going to be a lot of butt-kicking and name-taking. He is going to march through uh, a lot of things. We'll touch on a few of them here in a minute. And he's going to show up in Jerusalem, and he's going to be crowned king. That's what's happening here. So that's a far more complicated story than Jesus comes back, we win. Yep, he does. And yep, we do. But there's a lot of details that make up that we win. Now, here's the reason I am so excited about this subject. This has been one of my favorite subjects over the years. It makes Jesus Christ so real. He's a man doing stuff. You know, I don't know about you, but when I read the Gospels and I see Jesus spit in the dirt and make mud and put it on dude's eyes, I'm like, that's about the most human thing I ever heard. It's like, that's a dude. He's like, he spit in dirt. Like spit. I know what spit is. I have spit and dirt. And that dude has eyes. And Jesus has hands. So he's using his mouth, his saliva glands, his spit, his innovative nature. I mean, I don't know what made the man think to spit and dirt to heal eyes, but whatever. He makes the goo and sticks it on the eyes. I'm like, that is so human. You're a human. Fully God, fully human. Thinking human stuff. Doing human stuff with human Hearts, like mouth and fingers and wiping. Human. So when we read about the second coming procession, he gets human again. Because here's a little bit of a disconnect that I think that we have that we need to graduate out of. I I want us to go on a journey of maturing past this. Jesus went to heaven and became a myth to us. We read the gospels and he's human there. He's real. But now he's in heaven, it's like, heaven's, I don't know where, Jesus is up there, I guess, or something, maybe floating around. No, he's a human. When he comes back, he's going to do 30, again, made up number, he's going to do 30 human things. He's going to march, he's going to walk, he's going to do stuff. At one point, it says, he leans down while he's in the middle of this processional march, he's in the middle of all these battles and things, he's thirsty. And at one point, it actually says he leans down and he drinks water out of a brook. While he's like in a processional march on his way to Jerusalem, fighting bad guys on the side because you get thirsty. I'm like, that's so human. That is like, wow, you, I can relate. This makes sense. This is not a fairy tale anymore. This isn't mythical unicorns. This is like, this is really going to happen. This is real. So the subject of the second coming procession, I just cannot advertise it enough as a way to feel your spirit, as a way to understand eschatology better, uh, and as a way to you know, really make sense of what's going to happen because there's going to be a great transition that's going to occur on this earth, and it's not going to happen with a genie blank, boom, it's done. It's going to happen with order, process. There's going to be things that happen that are very normal and relatable as well as all the supernatural dynamics. But let's not look at it as all, when Jesus comes back, it's all supernatural and nothing we understand or know or relate to from a natural standpoint works anymore. All that's gone. Gravity just goes away. No, the natural order of things, walking, talking, drinking water, they're all still part of the scenario. So when he comes, there's this beautiful, complex reality 
<coughs> and there's a dramatic series of events. You know, one of the things that I think it's important for us to understand is that Jesus is coming the first time. No one relatively to the human population around the earth, no one knew the Son of God came. I mean, really, by just you know, relative numbers, percentages. 99.9% of the planet had no idea Jesus just came to the planet. That problem will be remedied with a giant exclamation point when he comes a second time. No one will miss it. Every eye will see. Everyone will know it's Jesus coming back to the planet. So you want to think about the way Jesus came the first time, very incognito, baby in a manger. You want to think about that as the quietest way to show up on the earth as God. He's going to come back the second time the loudest way imaginable, and he's not in a hurry. When he comes back, he's not trying to genie blink and get the thing done. He's actually trying to draw it out. He's actually trying to do the whole process, make sure everybody's taken care of, every situation is accounted for. He's actually marching. Once he gets on the earth, he's actually marching. He's walking. There's a lot of walking to do to cover the distance that he's going to be walking. Now, we don't know, but if there might be some supernatural speed that aids that, I certainly could believe for that. But the point is, it talks about him marching and walking with his armies behind him. So we want to be thinking about a very complex version of the second coming with Jesus being announced loudly. He's got a prolonged mission on the earth that he's coming for. When Jesus comes back the second time, or well, he comes back a second time. When he comes back, he is coming back to stay. He is coming back to set up shop for the thousand years and well beyond. He is coming to establish a kingdom. He's not going anywhere. There's not any like, oh, the time clock, you know, I've only got 33 years and then I'm done. There's none of that. He is here for good, and he is setting up residence on the earth. And when he returns with all of his armies, he's showing up with a show of force in order to be able to accomplish that purpose of establishing his kingdom here on the earth. A procession. Just wanted to give you a couple of uh, thought processes here. I'm top of page two, if you're looking. Oxford American Dictionary defines a procession as a number of people or vehicles moving forward in an orderly fashion, especially as part of a ceremony or festival. All of that is just spot on. <laughs> a number. That, that's the only part that ought to be exaggerated. A number of people. How about a billion saints, a billion angels or something? Who knows the other categories of things that are coming that we don't exactly have all that figured out? A number of people that are in a ceremony marching someplace, doing something. Yeah, a number is a, a fair starting point. It's attention grabbing. But that number, it's not just so that everybody has representation. That number is actually part of the forcible, hostile takeover of the earth. Here's my point. When Jesus comes a second time, it will be unmissable. No one will miss it. Everyone will see, and specifically, Revelation 1-7 says, look, he's coming in the clouds, or with the clouds, and every eye will see him. I just want to assure you, there will not be one single person alive on the earth, in heaven, or in hell, that doesn't see this moment. This is now the attention of all of creation. It's the second coming of Jesus. And remember, the first coming was the setup for the second. The reason the Jews crucified Jesus is because they were so upset that he says he's the Messiah, but he's not doing second coming stuff. They wanted second coming kick butt king because their Bible says second coming kick or says come, this Messiah is going to come and he's going to take over the nations and he's going to kick butt and take names. So when he wasn't doing that, he showed up as meek lamb. They were ticked. And they were like, you are not the Messiah we signed up for. So you need to go. And so the reason that the, the baseline was their anger, their jealousy, and he was claiming things that he wasn't backing up the way that they wanted him to back up, that he had every intention of backing up later called the second coming, but not during the first coming. And so there was a lot of motivation there. So what's, what's interesting about that is, they were right, not in what they did, but they were right in their assessment. The Messiah is supposed to take over the planet. Yes, he is. And yes, he will. He just didn't do it in his first coming 
on purpose for a different purpose. So anyway, he will be unmissable this second time. Now I want to deal with a couple of misconceptions. And I'm, ha- I'm be glad to have you guys work some of this out in your uh, discussion groups. A couple of misconceptions that we want to just get some Bible ideas on. Here, here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you with something. This is a really important idea. Okay, this is a really important thought process. One of the fun things about being part of the prayer room is we get to have friendships with people in all sorts of different church uh, backgrounds. Not only church backgrounds, but doctrinal backgrounds. And so you meet this guy or gal and they go to this church and they believe this, this, and this, and they're really, really strong about it. And then you meet this guy or gal and they go to a different church and they believe this and this, and they're the exact opposite of what the other person believes. It's like, they both can't be right fully if part of the fully means that the other person is fully wrong. You got me? Now, what that means is this. We need to be people that are not committed to our denominational belief system. We are committed to what the Bible teaches. So if we're presented with something that that's not what I grew up hearing, that doesn't matter if the Bible says it. If the Bible makes it clear and you're like, and you see it in the Bible, you go, well, I'll be darned, that's in the Bible. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter what you grew up learning because I guarantee you some of what you grew up learning is wrong. And some of it is right. Let's be committed to the word of God, not committed to whatever it is that we've grown up learning. So if I'm going to say some things right now that you're like, that's not what I grew up learning. Well, then we've already addressed that. Let's just look at what the Bible says. Okay. The first is the saints have great glory in the great tribulation. The church has great glory being on the planet while horrible things are happening. The church will be here during the great tribulation. The church will not be raptured before the great tribulation. There is great glory in us being here. Now, what I want to put on here is I want to talk about specifically the main subject that is highlighted again and again is how the church needs to be warned and prepare for all the persecution that the Antichrist is going to bring. The Antichrist is going to be a big, meanie face. The church is warned about Mr. Big Meanie Face like 75 times. We don't need to be warned against him if we're not going to be here to face him. We are going to be here to face him, which is why we're warned against him. We're warned over and over. You're going to be here for this. It's going to be hard. Don't quit. And we are not going to cower in fear. Many martyrs will die. I mean, that's part of the thought process. Part of the the, uh, warning isn't watch out for him, he's mean, you know, avoid him. Part of it is don't give in to the lie that he's more powerful than me. Part of it is, yeah, a bunch of you are going to get martyred. Don't quit. Don't give in. Don't bow. Don't take the mark of the beast. (laughs) Whatever you do, don't give in to this evil man. That's the reason that we're told over and over and over and over about warnings about the Antichrist. I'm going to just give you one of them, Daniel chapter 11, 33 through 35. Those who are wise will instruct many. This is talking about the forerunners that have been preparing for decades probably before Jesus shows up. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time, this is talking about the period of the Great Tribulation, they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. Well, that sounds horrible. When they fall, they will receive a little help. I'm actually thinking that speaks a lot of the move of the Holy Spirit in the inner man. And many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until what? Until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. This is the description of the great tribulation and how difficult it's going to be for, uh, for believers. Not having anything to do with the judgments of God. We'll touch on that in a minute. This is talking about the difficulties that are going to face the church at the hands of the Antichrist in a global system that will hate believers. He says, you need to be ready. You need to be those wise ones. You need to be prepared. There are difficulties that are coming, but it'll be your glory. The greatest harvest in human history is going to take place during the Great Tribulation. The Great Harvest will not occur because God just blinked and said, hey, I want everybody to get saved. People are going to get saved the same way they've always gotten saved. Somebody's going to tell them about Jesus, and there's going to be an anointing of signs and wonders. The period of the Great Tribulation, hear me, is the church's greatest hour of victory 
in human history. The church will be operating with the greatest measure of power, authority, unity, understanding, and keeping in step with the Holy Spirit to know what the Holy Spirit is doing. The great tribulation is not us going, oh, life's so bad, it's so horrible, there's plagues. It's the church marching forward into darkness with power and authority and seeing a great harvest of souls while we're doing the work of the kingdom of God. That's what the church is doing during the great tribulation. Now, some of you might go, yeah, but I always heard that God didn't appoint us to wrath. He didn't appoint the church to wrath. But you know what God is really good at? He's so good at this. He's got two people. That one needs to be judged and die. And the one right next to him needs to be rewarded and be with Jesus forever in heaven. So you know what God does? He kills one and not the other. You guys remember the rebellion of Korah? The earth grew a mouth and swallowed only the bad guys and no good guys. And then there were a bunch of people that were burning incense. And it said fire fell from heaven and consumed 250 not random people, the 250 who had been burning incense. Not the, not the guy next to him. Not, not the other people that weren't burning incense. See, God's really good at this. He's like, he knows how to do this. It's really easy for him. We have a very confused idea that if God is releasing wrath, that must mean he's going to get me. That is never the case in the Bible. God never goes, oh, I released wrath over there and I accidentally got one of the good guys. I, can't, I, would, I need to be more careful next time. He's always more careful each time. He knows how to do this. Let's read, though. I want to give you the word. 2 Peter 2, 5 through 9, I'm on top of page 3. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and he made them an example of what is going to happen for the ungodly, if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day to day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. See, what happened in all those stories is bad guys got what they had coming to them, good guys didn't. That's what happened in all those stories. Well, let me just read you a couple more examples. I gave you the earth split apart. That's the number 16. You can read that one on your own. But look at the Exodus. I just gave you one example, but there are like nine, okay? Exodus 12, 20, uh, 29 through 30. This is what God does when God says, okay, I like you. You're one of mine. You've been killing everybody and are rebellious. Okay, I know how to deal with you, and I want to keep you alive. And they live next door to each other, okay? This is what he does. All right. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all of his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. I should have given you the other verse that says, but this did not touch any of the Israelites, that there were none found dead in any of the homes of the Israelites. Why? Because God knows how to bring judgment to the wicked while preserving the righteous on the same night, same day, same situation. Uh, so we just, we need to get rid of the idea that the verse says, God did not appoint us to wrath. That's true. There's no and bit, buts or what about that? The question is, what does wrath look like? And is God able to save the one that doesn't deserve wrath when he's right next to the one that does deserve wrath? And the answer is yes, of course he does. He's been doing it all the time. He knows how to do this. The last one that I want us to, to uh, look at, last misconception, then we'll move on to the procession, is Jesus is ushered in by a hostile takeover. I want you to think about this. Now, for just for the sake of getting your head in the game, let's pretend that Jesus is the bad guy. Just for a minute, okay? Planet Earth is just minding its own business, doing what it wants to do, and all of a sudden, this foreign invader comes with an invincible army. And he's got ideas that the Earth is like, no, we don't like those ideas. We don't, we don't want you. He's like, yes, I'm going to be king over you. No, we don't want you king over us. I'm going to be king over you. Well, if you want to be king over us, you're going to have to come and take it. And Jesus says, fine, no problem. 
I have an invincible army of resurrected saints and angels. Here I come. Jesus is going to do the most bloodbath takeover of the planet you can possibly imagine. It just so happens we're with him. We're on his side. We like his agenda. But you've got a picture the majority of the human race is not going to be feeling like you and I are feeling. They're going to look at this as a foreign invader invaded their planet with indestructible armies and killed everybody. Like that, that's a really bad day for that team. This is the storyline, is Jesus' hostile takeover of the planet and then establishment of a new government. Now, again, we're all going to look at it and go, Justin, true your ways. We're going to look at it and we're going to go, this is right. It's so much better, Jesus in charge, than any of these other jokers. But all the other jokers are going to go, we didn't sign up for this dude to come out of the sky and take over our governments and take over our planet. It will be viewed as a hostile takeover. That's a very in, a big interpretive key here. Okay, we've covered most of section three already, so I'm just going to do a little browse or a little kind of a once over on it, <clears throat> and then we'll uh, do the, per the second coming procession. A great transition for the saints. Some of the things that occur during the second coming procession is the rapture of the church. We get taken up to be with the Lord in the air. The next is the saints and Jesus coming back on horsebacks. We talked a little bit about that. But this is all the setup for a procession. Because remember, a procession is a number of people, in this case a very large big number, a number of people that are moving together in an assembly. They're kind of walking down a street in some form of a ceremony or that kind of thing. This ceremony is all these guys on horsebacks, okay? And then forever... We're clothed with a resurrected body. So part of this procession is we're glowing or something. There is glory resting on us as those with resurrected bodies. We are going to be operating in a, in a significant measure of brightness. When he comes, we're part of that coming. And it says the brightness of his coming abashes the sun. I mean, it's like, like this is really bright. Well, it's not just he's bright. We got a resurrected body and our bodies are like his body. So now we're clothed in the resurrection. And then we will receive our reward. This is all part of what happens when he, when he comes. And then the saints will rule with him those that have been faithful. And I just want to give you uh, two verses here as we kind of uh, uh, end that section. I just want to make sure it's really clear because there's, there's something we want to understand. Jesus takes human life seriously. He takes not just the lives of people but what it means to be alive and the activities on earth. Jesus created everything. We've not invented any new ideas down here. We've only taken ideas he had and either operated them the way that he intended or we've distorted those ideas. We didn't come up with a new idea. So here's what I mean by that. The concept of taking out the trash, the concept of cleaning the dishes, the concept of having a conversation over coffee, we didn't make these ideas up. This is what it means to be human. That and a million other things. Conversations, travel, this, that. Every aspect of human life was his idea, not ours. So when he comes back, he is going to be ruler over everything. And I think he's going to take it seriously, the crew of people that's in charge of keeping the parks clean. I think he's going to take it seriously, far more than our current government does. I think he's going to take it seriously, the ones that are in charge of various, various areas of industry and business. I think he's going to take things very seriously. He's going to look at it as precious and part of what it means to operate humanity and to run government and to run all that stuff. Why do I say all that? When he puts his government in place, he is going to appoint all of us some position in his new infrastructure. Somebody is going to be doing something. Everybody's going to be doing something here's the part that should matter to us. Jesus, your salvation is free. You cannot earn your salvation. There's no way to do that. You ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. That's how you earn salvation. You give your life to Jesus because of everything he did. You can't earn your salvation. But your position in the next age is completely connected to how did you treat people during this age? How did you hold your heart? Did you forgive or did you hold grudges? Did you operate in the fruit of the spirit or did you operate in the fruit of the flesh? Did you follow the voice of God or did you ignore it? Did you never learn to hear the voice of God on purpose so that you wouldn't have to hear it? 
the Lord has a lot of grace for ignorance, but every area, remember, he knows the heart. <laughs> do, do, we, do we not ask the Lord for his counsel, his insight, in order that we can live our life and do our life? Because what Galatians says is, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life I go on living, I now live for the Son of God. That We're going to be assessed on all that, every single person. Every person. And we're then going to be given positions in the next age based off of how we lived in this one. This is fear and trembling here, people. This is like, it matters how I respond. It matters what I say and what I don't say. It matters how I carry my heart. It matters how I carry my heart when somebody does me dirty, straight up dirty. How do I treat them? How do I respond? How do I talk about them? This stuff really matters because every one of us is going to be given a position in Jesus's government, but I don't want us to think that Jesus's government is all the governors of states and the kings of nations and the mayors of cities. There's a bajillion positions in his government, but I want us to read these two verses because I think this makes it really real in a way that I hope strikes home with us. Part E, page five to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end. Now, I think that, past, that phrase is loaded. Victorious how? All of it. <laughs> does my will to the end doesn't just mean did it one day, then didn't do it for, you know, 20 years, and then did it for another week the week Jesus came back. That's not what that means. This is talking about consistent faithfulness to the word of God, to the spirit of God, to truth, to Bible principles. To the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. There will be some who we will say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. They will have authority over the nations. That one, notice he says that one. Like, like this is not the big group. <laughs> That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I've received authority from my father, I'm now going to give authority to them for them to lead for real. They're going to have real authority. But look at Matthew 5.19. This should make us all really spend a minute and talk to the Lord. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Hi, my name's Brad. No, it isn't. What, what do you mean it isn't? Oh, no, I know who you are. You're called least. I'm not playing. Jesus' words. And he says, you know how you get called least or you get called greatest? How you live now. How you handle the commands of God, how you teach others. Yeah, I'll just say it this way. You don't have to be looking at a platform teacher. This all happens in our lives. There are things we need to be real careful what we teach others, what we disciple into others, because we can make them twice the sons of hell of us as us. We want to be careful that we don't teach others in order to protect our comforts. I want to teach them this in order to set myself up better. Because he says, if you teach even the least of these commandments to other people and you teach it wrong, <laughs> He said, you're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And just so you know, if you needed a direct reference point, it's the Sermon on the Mount he's referencing. So if you live out the Sermon on the Mount perfectly, good luck on that, you're good to go. No problem. And then just teach that. That's mostly what he's referring to. That's, mo that's the context of what he's referring to. He just gave the Beatitudes, and then he continues to unpack those Beatitudes throughout the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So when Jesus comes, <laughs> we're going to be assessed, and it really matters what you did with your time and your attention, what you did with your attitudes and your love. It really does matter. Okay, let's spend just a few minutes on the path of the procession, because that's what the whole session was all about. The path of the procession. I want to just give you the general. He's going to appear in the sky. All the armies of heaven are with him. So just imagine, you know... Two billion or three billion light things, people. I mean, they're, they're, they're people and angels, but there's glory resting on them. So there's brightness. So three billion, two billion, whatever the number. 
They start off in the sky. They come to the planet. They start walking around on dirt. They walk through streams. They do stuff. They eventually walk up through the south side of, uh, of Israel's borders. They come up through uh, the east side of the Jordan River. They cross the Jordan River. They come into Jerusalem, and eventually they walk out of Jerusalem, and they take care of all the bad guys that are to the west of Jerusalem that are gathered for the Battle of Armageddon. You guys know the Battle of Armageddon? It's the end of the procession. It's not the beginning. It's the very end. It actually is 30 days later. There's going to be this giant processional march that ends outside of Jerusalem with all the saints that are resurrected fighting the Antichrist and all the nation's armies. This is really kind of a big story. Now, there is no one passage. I just want to say this clearly. The Lord loves mystery. The Lord says, seek me and you will find me. He says, seek me with all of your heart and you'll find me. The Lord loves for us to have to dig. So he doesn't make it so easy that every person having just read a little bit of the Bible once would know everything. You've got to dig. You got to mine the word of God. The reason I say that, there is no one passage in the scripture that in that single passage gives you a complete picture of the procession. There is no one passage. I do think, however, that Psalm 68, 17 through 24, does a pretty darn good job of encapsulating a lot of it, okay? It doesn't get all of it, but encapsulates a lot of it. Let's read it. The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. When you ascend on high ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Surely God will crush the heads of his enemies, the hairy crowns of those who go on in their sins. The Lord says, I will bring them from Bashan. I will bring them from the depths of the sea that your feet may wade in the blood of your foes while the tongues of your dogs have their share. Your procession, God, has come into view. The procession of my God and King into the sanctuary. That's just a good one. That's, that's not the whole picture, but it's a really pretty good starting point. Start here with the procession in the sky. I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes on each one of these, maybe one minute each, and then we'll break into discussion groups. Procession in the sky, top of page six. Christ appears in the sky at the last trumpet. I gave you the Bible verses. Every eye sees him. Gave you the Bible verse. Christ gathers all the saints. That's what happens in the sky. But the procession has to go from the sky to the dirt. Procession on the ground. He lands on Mount Sinai, I believe. And I want to throw that in there. I know he's on Mount Sinai at some point during the procession. That part's clear. I believe that's where he lands there. Perhaps that's not where he lands. Perhaps he starts someplace else and winds up there. But that's where I think he lands for reasons I don't want to go into right now. But at any point, at some point during the procession, he's on Mount Sinai. He comes on a cloud to Egypt. He amasses his army on the mountains. Amasses his army. So he's got this army that's up in the sky, but now he's amassing the army on the mountains. It's one of the reasons I think that it's Sinai where that's happening. He crosses the Red Sea again. He's going to repart the sea, folks. If you missed the first one, which I'm pretty sure you did, you'll be there for the second. Epic. I always wanted to know, what are the dynamics with the fish? You know, are they right there and you can stick your finger in and poke them in the eye? They're kind of swimming right next to you. Do any of them accidentally kind of hop out? Like, I, I always wanted to know what the dynamics are. I'm going to get to see it. Praise the Lamb. <laughs> he drinks from and leads people to streams to drink during his walking, during his marching. It's fascinating. Gave you the verses. Now the procession through the nations. He crushes Moab. He marches through the land of Edom. He crosses the Jordan River. Again, I gave you verses. Procession into Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem. He approaches, this is ridiculous detail. He approaches Jerusalem from the northeast. And then from the northeast, he parts, not the sea, he parts the Mount of Olives at a word. The Mount of Olives is there. It's a mountain. 
And he says, I'm going to part you like I parted that sea. And what he does is he creates a backdoor entry point into Jerusalem for the processional march. Because remember, I told you, it's, diff, it's, not, it's okay if you didn't pay attention to details, all the bad guys, all the armies, they're out to the west. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but more or less they're to the west of Jerusalem. He's going to come in from the northeast and create a new back door in order to march out of Jerusalem because the warrior king wants to march out of Jerusalem to go deal with the bad guys, not attack them from behind. He wants to make it clear, you're coming to my city, I'm going to march out of my city, and I'm going to take you out. So he does. He marches out to fight on behalf of his people. Jesus defeats the Antichrist armies. He's invited into Jerusalem to reign as king forever. He's invited by the Jews to, to be God, King, Leader, Messiah in Jerusalem. Now, one of the details I didn't give you in here, but there's so many verses. I just want you to look at part E and look at all those verses and go, wow. Gathering Jewish captives is big on his agenda. One of the main pieces of the processional march is everywhere there are Jews in prison camps under the regime of Antichrist, he's going to get them out of prison camps. Everywhere that there are Jewish captives. That's not a light idea, and it's also not a symbolic one. Like, you know, it just means they're having a bad day. It just means they're oppressed. No, it means they are physically captives. It says frequently, he will loose their chains. I love the deliverance ministry in Sozo. I love the concept of, please free me up from all my spiritual chains. I love that. That's not what those verses are primarily talking about. They are primarily talking about physical chains on a person who is physically in jail. They are imprisoned. He is going to go and he's going to set them free. It's a major theme. reason I gave you part E was so that you could see that. And then I just gave you a few more verses for future study if you're interested in studying a little bit more on the procession. Okay. Well, now you're going to have a riveting conversation in groups. Luke, how many groups we got tonight? Five groups of how many? Six to seven. Okay. So if, I, if you're a group leader, hand in the air, please, really high and don't put it down. Uh, Caitlin, can I get you to move over here? So one, two, three, four. I only see four. Who's my fifth? John Stokes is my fifth. Congratulations, John. Uh, so, John, why don't you move over here? Caitlin, you stay put. Luke, you stay put. Hey, John, if you'll move over here. So, John, wave your hand so everybody can see you. Okay, so John's going to be over here. Andy's in the back. If you guys would get into groups of, what did we say, seven to eight? Was that the number? Six to seven is what I meant. Thank you. Okay, we're uh, moving into our time of uh, Q&A uh, from the, each of the groups. And what we'll do is I'll repeat the uh, question that you asked so that those that are watching online or listen later can hear the uh, question. Um, let's go ahead and start uh, over here. Why don't we start with you guys? Great question. So specifically in relationship to the moment of wrath, um, these that are being given over to wrath, they're receiving the wrath of God, they're being pressed in the wine press of God's wrath, we're killing them with swords. I mean, it's like a really intense time. Specifically relationship to what is the emotion, what is the emotional state of God during that? And even then what as kind of an overflow is the emotional state of the saints. And one of the verses that was quoted is God takes no pleasure in the wrath uh, of the wicked. So, did I say that? Death of the wicked. Thank you. The death of the wicked. Um, so the, um, uh, the simplicity on this, it's really, it, it, it's really pretty simple. All the Bible verses are all true all at the same time. So if the Bible says that God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, and these have got to be the single like most wicked people that have ever been, then his heart is not happy about their death. But there is something about the fulfillment of justice that is essential that just imagine the judge that's at the, you know, they're, they're doing their job. They're a judge, a natural judge in natural life. And they've got to pronounce the death sentence for somebody. I don't know that their heart is like happy that person's going to die, but it is the right thing for that person to die for their crimes. And so there's, <clears throat> there's this whole thought process of pleasure. I mean, God says he, he, he smells the incense, the offerings that we live in. And there's pleasure. He takes pleasure in his children. This is my son and whom I'm well pleased. There's all these emotions of God's pleasure, but we don't need to transfer that over to anytime God does anything, he is necessarily feeling pleasure when he does it. Uh, and so it says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and there's going to be a lot of wicked death. So I think we're going to be filled with understanding, with revelation, with righteousness. We're going to be filled with the, the revelation of judgment being right. Um, but I don't know that we're going to be smiling as we slay. And so I don't think that there's that... Uh, uh, thought process. Uh, great question. That is, that is a good one. Uh, was there one over here or no? Okay, and back here. So the question is, 
specifically with relationship to the battle component and the slaying and how all that works, is that the entire procession or is that just at the end or is it key moments? I think key moments with most of it being at the end. Uh, and so I think that uh, the, the, the period of the Great Tribulation is when the judgments are being poured out. That's when Jesus comes back. He comes back at the seventh trumpet. But then there's still seven bowls of wrath that are being poured out during that period of time. And so when Jesus comes back, there is, you know, we've looked at it in another session, but there's 30 days between when he lands, or when he rather appears in the sky, and when he uh, shows up in, uh, in Jerusalem. And so during that period of time, one of the main things on the agenda of the Antichrist is to gather all the armies of the nations to assemble in Jerusalem, or rather outside of Jerusalem, in order to be able to have this big old last fight. And so that's going to be part of what's, what's occurring. I think there's going to be little skirmishes. I think there's going to be troops that are guarding that prison camp where there's a bunch of uh, Jews and potentially, uh, you know, you know, other people as well that have been held captive in that prison camp. And there's going to then be little skirmishes or, you know, little, little fights uh, happening. But as far as like the main battle where we read, he pulls the sword out of his mouth, he goes for it, all the saints, you know, uh, Psalm, you know, 149, it's the glory of all the saints to do this high praises in their mouth, sword in their hand. Uh, I think that the majority of that is reserved for the final battle outside of Jerusalem, but I don't think it will be 100% completely limited to that moment. I think that there will be little moments along the way. What if, what if uh, inevitably at some point the crossing of paths, because just imagine how long this procession is. I, I mean, how long is the line when you got two billion in it? And I, they don't all have to be in single file line for this to still be a hot mess. I mean, if they're as wide as two football fields, uh, two billion people angels is a lot. So that's a long, long thing. So my point is, if the nations are gathering to Jerusalem for a big old fight, and their armies are crossing, what if they just happen to need to cross that area right there where the, the two billion are in procession? Those little moments and things, and I don't know how all that's going to play out, but I, I think that it's a good point of distinction to say that the majority of the fighting will occur outside of Jerusalem at the final battle, but I don't think that that's going to mean that there can't be any little moments along the way, because I think that they will be, they'll just be minimized. Excellent question. Uh, yeah, Luke. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's, there's this, uh, we've got a number of occasions where there are people that are in heaven that are seeing what's happening on earth, the great cloud of witnesses. Okay. This concept that heaven is able through some lens that we're not able to fully understand heaven is able to view what's happening on earth. We've got a couple of occasions as well related to the people in hell being able to witness some of what's going on on earth. Uh, the occasion of, you know, uh, Lazarus and he's, he's alive and, and, uh, and yet uh, there's the man that's in hell and he's saying, you know, warn my brothers. And there's, so there's, they're, they're aware that their brothers are there. There's, a, I don't, I can't point to a verse. And so, be fine to fact check this. In fact, let me pause for a second. I don't want you to believe anything I say. I just don't want you to dismiss it because I said it. Look in your Bibles. And if there's Bible verses attached to these crazy ideas, don't not read them. That's on you then. So I'm not saying it because I said it, you should believe it. I believe stuff that I'm sure is wrong. I just don't know what it is or I wouldn't believe it. <laughs> So don't just believe something because I said it, but also don't you dismiss it because somebody said it. Go look in your Bible. Look in your Bible with your eyes and you see. And that's how we come to truth. Not that we just believe teachers or don't believe you. I don't like them. So I'm not going to believe them. That's a horrible way to approach theology. I like them a lot. Everything they say must be true. Equally horrible. Look in your Bibles, okay? So, what was I saying? <laughs> I had a point that I got on a little tangent. It's been a long week of admin getting ready for this summit. What was it? The, the people in hell. The people in hell, yeah, yeah. So, so my point with that is I don't have a Bible verse to point to this exactly. I've just got some of these references. But it seems right to me, and again, you can fact check this in your word, but it seems right to me that this is the single most important moment in human history. It's Jesus Christ actually now becoming king on the planet in real time with real authority. 
Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every. So somehow or the other, hell sees this, knows it's happening, is aware of it, some version of that. And again, I can't exactly tell you what that looks like, but some version of that. So I'm sure that was very unhelpful. Okay. All right. I'm going to try to wrap it up in a way that I think uh, answers. So the, the question uh, rephrased maybe um, is, so the song in heaven continues on indefinitely. They always are you know, singing holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. When God comes, when Jesus comes with all the angels with him, what is going on with relationship to that everlasting song? Um, and I would just point to Psalm 149 again and it says, may the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all of his saints. So the glory, if you go back and just bullet point it, the glory of all his saints is to come judge all the kings on the earth doing two things, singing and slaying. It says they're singing the praises of God and they have a sword in their hands to inflict vengeance. But both of them are actually inflicting vengeance, not just the sword, but also the singing. And so, uh, so the question of, does the song follow Jesus? I think it absolutely follows Jesus. Uh, and as far as the worship music aspect, the, you know, the rhythm, the beat, the, all that kind of stuff, I mean, I, I don't know that we know exactly what the musical instrumentation around the throne looks like, but we do know that all the angels of heaven left heaven on this procession. So whoever it is that's performing music around the throne is probably still performing music around Mr. Throne Man as he comes out of heaven and comes to the earth. So it seems to me that the song follows Jesus, not just the, the singing, but probably whatever beat, rhythm, anthem, song, music, you know, atmosphere, everything. Uh, it will be awesome, glorious, and loud, and terrifying. Yeah, that's a good word, John. That's right. Okay. Well, great. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and uh, finish up. Worship leader, you can come on up. I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll uh, put the chairs back. Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God, and we ask you to help us to understand. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.